Ek Women brings you inspiring narratives of women who have fought the odds, made a niche, and found success in their chosen fields. Our guest today is award-winning author, poet, academic, and activist Chitra Banerjee Devakaruni. Born in Kolkata, Chitra came to the U.S. for a master's in English at Dayton, Ohio's Wright University. After a PhD at UC Berkeley and many years in Northern California, she is now the Betty and Jean McDavid Professor for Creative Writing at the University of Houston. Her prolific writing career is peppered by awards and accolades, and her books have been translated into 29 languages. Another claim to fame, popular Bollywood actress Aishwarya Rai enacted the protagonist's role in the Hollywood adaptation of her book, Mistress of Spices. Fun fact, Betty like Beckham's Gurinder Chadda was one of the writers of the screenplay. Chitra is on the board of non-profits focusing on South Asian causes like San Francisco-based Maitri, Diane Houston, and is also an emeritus board member of Houston's Pratham. As one of the pioneers in the genre of South Asian writing about diaspora women, she is the perfect fit for Ek Women's Tribe. Though her husband Murthy and sons Anand and Abhay make up her immediate family, she has a large global family of fans and supporters. Let's hear more on how our guest has woven a web of enchantment and illusions to snare her readers. Just a side note, the interview was recorded before the release of Chitra's latest book, The Last Queen. Hello Chitra and welcome to our podcast. Hi, I'm really happy to be here. Thank you for chatting with me. We're excited. Was writing always your passion? <laughs> no, actually, I did not write anything until several years after I came to the United States. In fact, many of my students who are studying with me now in the creative writing program at Houston knew when they wanted to be writers, and that was usually very young. But it took immigration to make me into a writer. And I think it was the fact that I was shocked into thinking about the world in a new way after I moved here. That's what made me into a writer. Why did you come here to study? And what is it that shocked you into deciding to become a writer? I came here to study American literature. I wanted to be a professor. That's what I had planned because I liked education. My mother was a teacher and I felt that would be right along with what my character was like, my personality, things that I like to do, teaching people, helping others become better in their subject matter. But I never thought I was going to be a writer. And after I came here, I started writing, but very much on my own. I wrote to make sense of the new world in which I found myself. And I also wrote to remember the India I'd left behind because I felt and I feared that I was forgetting important things about it. What was that first book you wrote? The first book was a collection of poems. That's how I came into the writing world. I started writing poetry, which seemed much more manageable to me, little poems as opposed to large stories. I couldn't have imagined writing novels then, although that is my preferred form now. My first collection was book of poems, mostly about India and growing up in India, called Dark Like the River. I followed that with two other books of poetry, 
And only then I started writing short stories. What made you take that leap from poems to the longer format of writing? I think I was becoming more and more interested in stories, in how characters develop over a period of time, how events in our life and the people in our life change us, transform us, and give us a new vision of who we are in the world. For that, fiction just seemed to be a better form. How many books have you written, Chitra? I have 18 books, and the 19th will come out in January in India. That's amazing. What was the year that you first published? I think my poetry came out in 1989. What was it about American literature that fascinated you? You never thought UK and British literature? America seemed to me like a country that was wide open. It was much more multicultural than the UK, at least in my understanding and my opinion, I thought it was more exciting to study a literature that had many, many voices and was really involved in what was going on in the world. This forward-looking. A lot of the British literature which I had studied as an undergraduate in India were the old writers. I felt I knew enough of them and I wanted to explore a different field. Of course, there was a practical reason as well. My brother was already in the United States. I came from a pretty conservative family, and my mom said, if you're going anywhere at all, you have to go where Big Brother can keep an eye on you. <laughs> my parents did the same to me when I came here to study. I first stayed with my mama, mommy, and then after my brother came, they said, now you have to live together. I think we're from the same generation. They were scared of letting the girls go by themselves. Did you think you'd go back to India and teach? What kept you back here? I had been open about whether I would stay on here or go back there. I hadn't created any kind of future plans for myself, but I guess it happened because I met Murthy, the man who was going to become my husband. He was quite well settled here. He had two other brothers in this country and so we decided to stay on. And talking about brothers, is your brother still here? Or did your mom say, now you have a husband, it's okay if the brother is not there anymore? I think she was okay passing me on to my husband. <laughs> <laughs> By then, actually, it was several years in this country. I had moved from Ohio, where I did my master's, and Ohio was where my brother was. Then I had moved on to Berkeley in California. I was doing my PhDs. My mother felt, okay, she knows enough about this country. She can handle things. How did your career trajectory bring you to Houston? I was teaching in California. And then my husband, who was also working in California, got a really good job offer in Houston. So he said to me, what do you think? Shall we try a new place? It was kind of a new adventure. I said, yeah, why not? The kids were little. It was a good time to move them. So we moved to Houston and that worked out very well because the program I teach right now at the University of Houston is internationally acclaimed and it's one of the best programs in this country. But if my husband hadn't said, let's move to Houston, I don't think I would have done that on my own. It just worked out very nicely. And I love teaching where I teach now. I have students from all over the world and they are very talented. Tell us a little bit more about this program. 
This is a creative writing program. There's a master's in fine arts degree, and then there's a PhD, which is a combination of literature and creative writing. I'm pretty specialized. I teach only creative fiction writers, people who are working on novels and short stories. As they go through the program, they will have at least one complete book, sometimes two, and then they go ahead and publish them. Many of them have gone on to win awards. So it's a very rewarding work. I'm working with newer writers. Some of my students have been about the same age as me coming back to school. They decided to write later, but have a lot of life experience. It's just wonderful working with these talented new voices. I learned so much from them, just as I hope they're learning from me. And one of the things I bring into this program is expose them to a lot of Indian literature, both classic Indian literature like Tagore, but also contemporary Indian literature, writers who are just coming out or have come out in the last few years. That's so fascinating. Full disclosure, I'm one of these people close to your age writing her first novel. And I have a creative writing coach also, so I get how important that is in the writing process. It's very important to have other people look at our writing. This is true even for me. I have a group of writer friends. We share manuscripts. It's very helpful to get their feedback because no matter how good we are, we can't see all our faults. Any interesting anecdote that you can share about whoever you've mentored? I had a woman who was writing a story that was very close to her heart, and it had gay characters. I didn't know the woman's background. She had not said whether she was gay or not. There were a couple of other gay students in the class who pointed out that she got some facts wrong, and as gay individuals, they didn't feel that the gay people were being represented correctly. She got very upset. I still remember that first day in class, everybody's upset. Uh, people are on the verge of tears. This woman walks out of the class and bangs the door behind her. I'm like, oh, what am I going to do? I contacted her and said, why don't you come talk to me in my office? She came and said she was writing this based on the life of a gay friend who had committed suicide. So it was a very touchy issue for her. And to hear that maybe she hadn't gotten things right when she was already feeling so emotional about her friend who had passed away was very difficult. We sat for a long time and I talked to her about how, although writing comes sometimes from very close within us, when we are writing if we can't distance ourselves as authors, we cannot create a work of art. I have to give her credit. At the end of the semester, she rewrote that story and submitted it, and it was so much better. And it really made me think that one of the things that makes us successful in terms of being a writer isn't just our talent, but our ability to take criticism. When criticism is warranted, is the mark of a fine writer. That's a story I learned a lot from. Her critics were okay and they made peace. First of all, the people in the class really appreciated her courage to bring back a story which had received criticism and to say, hey, look, this is what I've done. Do you think I got it right? They all were very positive and said, this now makes a lot of sense. 
the gay students in the class said, I can really relate. I feel you've dealt with the matter respectfully and yet realistically. So the story had a happy ending. All's well, that ends well. As a South Asian professor, what is the bulk of students that you get in your class? I get a very nice mixed representation, white, black, Asian-American, South Asians, Africans from Africa. I've had students from Egypt, from South America. I have worked actively to recruit students from many different backgrounds because I believe that a multicultural classroom is a powerful classroom. We need to draw upon each other's knowledge and strength. And this goes beyond the classroom. I believe that when we embrace multiculturalism in our communities and in our cities and in our country, we are creating a better world, a stronger world, a more enriched world. That has been one of the central things about my teaching. This community aspect is something that we completely resonate with because AIC Women is all about building a community. So we completely resonate with that aspect. Currently, we're focused on women of the diaspora who are not only underserved, but have particular needs when they immigrate. I agree. You have such a diverse student body in your classes, but you haven't drawn from your students and their lives. Are your novels mainly about South Asian women? Uh, to a large extent. Of course, in some books, I have gone way back into our mythological stories, like in Palace of Illusions and Forest of Enchantments. The book that is coming out is a novel set in the mid-1800s about a queen, Rani Jindan, who fought against the British. So I've gone back into our South Asian history. I have books that are set partly in India, partly in the U.S., or all in the U.S., the heroines have always been South Asian or South Asian American women, but the other characters are from different races. For example, my novel, One Amazing Thing, which actually went on to be a one city read or a one university read. There's a program here called Freshman Reads. All incoming freshmen read one book so that they have something in common to talk about in their classrooms and their discussion groups. One amazing thing has been used for a lot of cities and a lot of universities, and that has white characters, African-American characters. There's a young man of a Muslim background. There's an Asian grandmother as well as her Asian-American punk granddaughter. So I like to write about different communities and how they interact depending on the story. How long does it take you from conceiving an idea, writing it and then getting it published? It really depends on the novel because some novels require a lot of research. I have like a writer's notebook in which I write down ideas as soon as I get them. But sometimes an idea will sit there for like three or four years before I work on it. Like Forest of Enchantment. Yes, Forest of Enchantments. I have been thinking about writing a novel on the life of Sita for at least 10 years, at least 12 years since I wrote Palace of Illusions. But I always felt, no, I have to become a better writer. The time is not right. I have to understand Sita's character better. I have to do more research. So that book took a long time to write. These two books on the epics, 
they are the ones that took the longest because I wanted to do really as meticulous a research as I could. I didn't want people to come to me later and say, oh, you got your facts wrong, so we don't take your book seriously. I wanted people to really see this is all in the ancient texts. We have just forgotten it. Popular interpretations have moved away from the strength of these women. It's really important for me to do research, even for my modern contemporary books, because I never want people to say, you just made that up. And you write children's novels too. Yes, I do. That has been a real pleasure for me. Actually, I started after 9-11 because there was so much sudden racism and fear in the United States at that time against people who looked different, people who looked, quote-unquote, dangerous. And that was people of my community. I remember being accosted in places by people who'd say things like, Iranian, go home. I understood the sentiment, which is that we don't trust you because you look different. So I wanted to open up children's minds from the time when they were receptive. Because a lot of adults who are prejudiced, there's not that much you can do to change their minds, at least not as a reader. They're just not going to read your book. But children are open to books and characters that they meet in books. I'm very happy because a lot of the books are taught in schools. I've made a lot of school presentations. I hope that in some small way, that's opened up the minds of kids to our culture. Any feedback from children about how your books have made a difference or parents who tell you how the books have made a difference to the children? Any story that you can tell us about some particular incident? I'll tell you one incident. I gave a talk and there was this young Indian-American girl and she was so excited because every time I would ask a question about something in the book, her hand would go up and she really wanted to participate. After class, her teacher said, ever since I've had her in my class, Sumita has not said a single word. She has never volunteered an answer. I was amazed to see what she could do and how much there was in her to share and that she was finally willing to share it. First of all, I thought, Thank God, because you write the book, that's all. You can't control anything that happens after that. But I was like, wow, I am so glad that this book made this child feel confident. She felt she was the authority about all the things that were happening in the book. And the others in the class were turning to her like, oh, really, tell us more. And it just created such a nice community in the classroom. That made me very happy. And must have given that little girl so much confidence. That's my hope, that it changed her a little bit and made her willing to participate more, to stand up more, to take a leadership position. All these things are so important and we don't realize how out of place many of our children or children from minority communities feel in the classroom and how important it is to include them. As a teacher, as a parent of South Asian children, how would you speak to South Asians who've immigrated here about helping their child adjust to being different? That's always a tricky one, isn't it? Because our tendency, I think of all parents, but certainly of minority parents who have faced some discrimination issues is to protect our child. I don't think protection alone is the right strategy. We have to teach our children and one of the things we want to make them feel 
is if we have decided to live in this country, if we have taken citizenship in this country, then this is our country. This is our primary culture. The Indian culture, the South Asian culture will always be important to us. It's beautiful. But we have made some choices and we have to make sure our children are comfortable here. I think it's very important for us to invite our children's friends into our homes, friends of different backgrounds. I've seen South Asian parents kind of push their children to make friends with other South Asian children. Nothing wrong with that, but that should not be their exclusive circle of friends. They need to have friends from many different backgrounds. That is one of the opportunities of this country. I'm very blessed that I live in an area where just on my street, there are other South Asians, there are Asian Indians, there are white people, black people, people from the Philippines. And I have encouraged my children to make friends with all of these people because when they learn about many other cultures, they feel much more confident about their own and about sharing their own. That's one of the first things important for us to do. The other thing is to encourage children to read books from other cultures because books are a very non-threatening way of inviting people into a culture. And when we read about other cultures, we just become sympathetic towards people of other cultures. The third thing is I tell them, if you like South Asian books, be sure to share those with your friends because you can have a conversation around those books too. And then they will learn about your culture in a very fun way. How do you pick your topics? What is the source of your creativity? Do you actually write maybe children's book and your own novels consecutively? Or is it you have to finish one and then you pick up another? So far, I've always had to finish one before I pick up another because I have to immerse myself in the world of that particular book. And generally, it's a very particular world with the characters who are in that book. And I can't really be thinking about any other characters at that time. So at least until now, that's been my process. As for my subjects, that's mysterious. Thoughts just come to me. Or I'll read something, or I'll see a movie, and a thought will come up. It might not even be directly related. It might just be something that's mentioned in a book or a movie or a conversation I hear. Early in my writing, I used to get a lot of ideas from just reading the newspaper, the mainstream newspaper, as well as our South Asian American newspapers. And news from India, which thanks to the internet, we have so many good news sources now. That still remains a source of inspiration. You hear about people's lives, you read about people's lives, something touches your heart. You're like, let me explore this. You came here around the 80s and we are now in the 2020s. Have you seen an arc? I think a lot of people who came here in the 80s tried to stay within their own communities because they were still testing the water. Do you see this difference? from when you first came here to now in the people you meet? Actually, I came here even earlier in the mid-70s. So I've seen a lot of differences. And when I came here, I had not been exposed to America much. The U.S. Embassy in Kolkata had a library, so I would go there and read things. But that's about all the exposure and maybe some movies. But 
People who come here now are so well exposed. They know a lot of things about the U.S. thanks to the internet, thanks to their WhatsApp groups. There's millions of sources of information. So they have a very good idea of what to expect. That's a big difference. And children who are growing up, many of whom are now not only second generation, but third generation, they're having their own kids. So the fourth generation is coming up. So of course, that is really different. To them, largely, their identity is American. I'm seeing that. And they mix much more naturally with others in this community. That said, there's an interesting pushback of communities who are trying to really preserve their culture. And I completely understand that. They feel the kids will lose their culture if they don't. So they make it a point to take the children to Sunday school so that they learn about their culture. They make it a point to go to reunions of not only South Asians or Indians, but their particular community, like the Bengali community, has its reunions, has all its pujas. The Telugu community, which my husband comes from, they have their own temple where all of the prayers are done in their language. They make it a point to have their children socialize among themselves. It's really interesting. These two diametrically opposed movements are happening in this country right now. One is real desire to hold on to one's roots. And one is just being very open and comfortable in this environment. I'm not saying that one is better than the other. I think we need a combination of both. I think both are healthy in moderation because we don't want to lose a sense of our roots. We don't want to forget who we are. We don't want to pretend that we are, let's say, white Americans, because we are never going to be that. And why would we want to be that? But we can't pretend that we are living in our home countries. We can't create little Indias or little Andhra Pradesh, little Bengal. That's not healthy. Anthropologists have talked about this creation of cultural ghettos as being something ultimately even politically dangerous. We made a choice to come here. We have to invest in America, just as America is investing in us and our children. Here's an interesting survey to Indian Americans living here, asking them about doing philanthropy in India. There was a shift between people who've come from there and people who are here. The people who wanted to help India were the ones who immigrated here. And the people who said, why should we help were the ones born and raised here. And they were like, we're happy to help South Asians in this country or help other American charitable organizations. You're involved in a lot of causes. Tell us, how did that come about? The two areas that I'm really involved in are things that I really care about a lot. One is the area of education. The organization that I've been closely involved with is Pratham Houston. I'm on their emeritus board. They help children get an education in India, particularly in the slum areas and in rural areas. But they've also worked with the government to create a reading program and a math program that's very, very effective and gets children literate in these subjects very quickly. They also work to bring women back to school to complete their education. And then they give a job training to both men and women of every age. I really believe in that cause. Actually, my children who have just started working 
also contribute to Pratham, but it's because I made it a point for them to understand who are the people that are being helped. And when they have gone to India with me, we have actually visited the Pratham Balwaris in the slums of Mumbai. When our children don't come in touch with who's being helped, it's hard for them to feel anything for them. Once my children saw those kids and saw those slum mothers who have been trained to become teachers and how they were running these little schools out of their one-room homes, their hearts were touched. And I think all children's hearts would be touched if parents make it a point to make that cause real to them. This is about real people. It doesn't matter if they're here or they're in India. And of course, being pragmatic, they would see right away that the dollar goes a long way in India and it can help many people. So I think that would be a way to change things for youngsters growing up here. But ultimately, at the end of the day, if our young people are interested in giving here, I think that's a wonderful thing too. It doesn't matter as long as they are growing up to be thoughtful, generous, philanthropic human beings. I don't care where they give. The other cause that I'm very involved in and have been for over 30 years is completely based in the U.S. I'm on the advisory board of Daya in Houston, which works with women who are victims of trafficking, women who are victims of domestic violence, survivors of domestic violence, women who have all faced violence of one kind or another and are trying to make a new life. When I was in California, I had found a similar organization called Maitri, which is doing very well now. Do you have any story to share with us? We keep these stories very confidential, but we have so many success stories of women who, when they came to us, their confidence was completely eroded because they had undergone such bad treatment in their own homes, from their own spouses, sometimes from their in-laws. They felt that they were worthless. Some of these women are women who have not received job training. They always thought they would be wives and mothers, and now that path was no longer open to them. Maitri has trained people and gotten them jobs. Daya has trained people gotten them into good careers. But some of them were women who had careers and yet they were victims of terrible violence which had taken away all of their self-confidence. We've helped a number of women doctors to get away from their abuser and start off in other cities. Tell me, Maitri Daya, they're both South Asian names. So when you're talking about these women, is it mainly the South Asians or is it the diasporic women? They're all diasporic women. Our mission is to help South Asian and South Asian American women. However, any woman who comes to us who's from a minority community, we help them because sometimes their community may not have an organization like us. And culturally, they feel a lot more comfortable with an immigrant organization. We help a lot of Middle Eastern women. If they come and there's no other place for them to go, That's why we started these organizations, because women from our communities were not going to the mainstream organization. In Houston, there's been a women's shelter for a long time, but our women never go there. We understood that they needed to talk to people who looked like them, understood their culture, 
We knew what kind of food they required. We knew their religious requirements. We felt that we had to be there for them. The mainstream organization would immediately say, would you like to go back to your family in India? We can arrange that. They would say, but not be understood that my family would be ashamed of me if I left my marriage and I went back. But we completely understand the whole idea of family shame, of stigma, of leaving a marriage, no matter what the cause, we talk to them about how that is nothing to be ashamed of. If someone else is abusing you, it's not your fault. No woman should be abused, should be afraid of being in her own home. That just isn't right. We can explain that to them in words that they would understand. I wanted to talk to you about your books of mythology, Forest of Enchantment, Palace of Illusion. Did you get a lot of pushback? Because these are the concepts these women are dealing with, these Agni Parikshas and not crossing these Lakshman Rekhas. How did you finally write it so beautifully from the point of view of women? I mean, you call it Sitayan, first of all, not even the Ramayan. Thank you. Like I said, when an idea comes to you, it's kind of magical. But I think the seeds for this was laid in my childhood when my grandfather would tell me the stories of the Ramayana and the Mahabharata. I wanted to know more about the women, but they were not a big part of the original stories. I was like, but what are they thinking? How did they feel? What did Draupadi feel as her clothes were being removed in the midst of an open kingly court? How did Sita feel when after being faithful to Ram and suffering in Ravan's kingdom for so long, she is finally rescued and then Ram says, but I can't take you back. The people won't accept you. It was their internal lives that became important to me. That is what I wanted to imagine and share with readers because I felt there's something timeless about these women that we can definitely learn from. Draupadi being sexually shamed, Sita being told that she can't go back because she was a victim of abduction. It's like one of the first Me Too moments in the world. And these things are still going on in not only India, but many countries where the woman who was the victim of violence, of abduction, of rape, is rejected by her family, by her community. It's not her fault. It's something that happened to her. I found as I explored these issues that they are very contemporary, they're very timeless. And Draupadi and Sita are wonderful voices who can stand up against these things. Something you wrote, I think it was in Forest of Enchantment. He has come to teach the men, but you have come to teach the women. The lesson you teach will be a quieter one, but as important. I think that's an underlying theme in your books. What was this lesson that you wanted to teach in either one of these books of yours? The overall lesson can only come through the character. So I have to bring the character alive. And then as the character naturally does what she needs to do, the lesson will come through. Draupadi and Sita can each offer to us how to stand up against injustice. And very interestingly, do it in very different ways. Draupadi is more headstrong. If she goes right at the problem, she's going to break that wall down, even if she bangs her head against it in the process. 
And Sita is like, I'm going to find a way around that wall. I will get past it, but I don't need to break it down. Sita has that quieter strength. Together, they are such wonderful and different and complementary images of women's roles. I didn't come at it with a lesson in mind. It evolved. And I just felt there's something enriching in these characters that really matters and that's really relevant even today. When you talk about relevant today, something that's really very popular is Sita Sings the Blues. I'm sure you've seen it and enjoyed it. Are a lot of people pivoting towards writing these books from the feminine perspective? Yes, I think there has been a real resurgence of mythological writing, especially in India. A lot of people are taking characters from the epics and reimagining their lives. Some of the books are very different from the original texts. They're really novels of their own, just using those characters. And some of them stay closer to the text. Our ancient stories, these myths or itihasas, as we say in Sanskrit, can go beyond any time period. They really have some deep human lessons we can use to strengthen ourselves from the inside. And particularly, I'm hoping in my work, because it's women-centered, that many women would. And actually, I have been so happy and so humbled by all the women who have written to me and said that these books have been life-changing for them. I get a lot of positive mail from men. And one of the nicest things that I got from a young man, he said, I bought this book for my mother and I gave it to her for her birthday gift. I said, mom, let's read it together. And we discussed it. And my mother told me things about her life that she had never shared with me before. He said, I'm so thankful to this book because my mother became my teacher in a way that she'd never been. I thought that was a very lovely email. (laughs) I tell my women readers, if you have enjoyed the book, share it with a man in your life. It could be a family member. It could be a friend. Because these stories are as relevant to men. We can make some kind of divide. These are women's stories. These are men's stories. Women for centuries grew up reading these stories that had men at their center. And it's just as natural for a man to read a book which has a woman at its center. We just have to encourage that kind of thinking. As a mother of sons, was it natural for you to only write about women? (laughs) Will there be any book where you write from a male perspective? Some of my books have multiple narrators. So some of the narrators are men also. But I think the major emphasis has always been on women. At least right now, I don't see that changing. I will keep writing with women at the centers of my books. You've said your dog has been your muse. Do you think writers need muses? It's been many years since Juno passed away, although she's still in my heart. When she was with us, I would come to my writing desk and she would curl up next to me and give me company. I think she realized mom is doing something that's tough. Let me see if I can give her a little extra energy. (laughs) So she certainly was a big presence in my writing. Whenever a new book came out, I would show it to her and put it down on the ground. She would try to open it with her nose. She was just interested in a book, which I thought was very strange for a dog, but maybe because she was my muse. (laughs) There's this Netflix series, The Queen, right? Queen Elizabeth is asked, which of your children is your favorite? 
I know I'm putting you on the spot, but of all the 18 novels that you've written, if you had to pick a favorite. <laughs> Unlike many parents, the newest, the youngest one is always my current favorite. That is a historical novel, but not mythological because the Sikh queen no. actually no. existed. Absolutely. Is she modeled on Sita Draupadi? No, she is her very own character, Rani Jindan, who was the wife of uh, Maharaja Ranjit Singh. We know a lot about her husband. We know a lot about her son, Maharaja Dalip Singh, who was the last prince, the last king of Punjab. And then the British annexed his kingdom. We don't know a lot about her. I had to do a lot of research to find out the facts of her life. And she's just a fascinating and unusual person. She was the daughter of a dog trainer. And that at that time was extremely unusual for a powerful king like Ranjit Singh to marry the daughter of a dog owner, which makes you think not only was she beautiful, but she must have had a pretty striking personality to make him want to marry her. She is the last queen that he marries and his favorite. There are so many strong female protagonists peppered across history and mythology for Indians. What drew you to her story? I mean, I've never heard of her, really. And I had never heard of her either. I just came across a story on the Kohinoor. The Kohinoor was owned by Maharaja Ranjit Singh, and then it was passed down to Jinda's son, Dalip Singh. As I was reading, there were some paragraphs mentioning her and her life. And I was like, this is such an interesting woman. Has anyone written about her? She's mentioned in historical texts, like history books but not in a novel. And so I just became fascinated because I found out a bit about how she was born into this very poor family, how she rose, how she was so strong and so different for her times. She was one of the few women who dispensed with the veil in their community. She went and talked to the army when she became a queen and her son was six years old. She really felt that I have to protect my son I have to make sure that I'm a strong presence in this court. Otherwise, someone's going to overthrow my son and probably kill him. Here's an example again, like Sita, of someone who motherhood makes her strong. Motherhood makes her reach deep for her resources of courage and even cleverness, plotting. How can I overcome intrigues? How can I see past people's plots? How can I keep my son safe? She's just amazing. All women have to learn that, isn't it? In their own lives. Yes, we do. There's obviously a lot of stories they're going to learn from reading your book. One of the things that I hope I've pointed out for all my women characters, but especially the ones that we tend to hold in high esteem and venerate, like Draupadi and Sita and now Jindan, is they all have their complexities. It's not like they are goody, goody, 100%. <laughs> They have their temper, they have their passions, their inability to see past certain things. They get hurt, they lash out at people. They are human. And that is really, really important for me to show in my books. I don't want to create some unachievable role model of womanhood and say to women, oh, you have to be like this. If I'm saying anything to women, I'm saying just be yourselves. Be yourselves. You don't have to be perfect. We're human. Nobody's perfect. Men are not expected to be perfect. 
Why should women be expected to be perfect? As somebody who's been reading your books, you identify with that character because you feel she's just like me. She thinks like me and I could have done that and I would have behaved like this, but I didn't do this. It comes across in your writing. And I think this is why a lot of women identify with your work because women are complex creatures. Thank you. I'm glad you said that and you felt that while reading because that's really what I'm hoping for. I think it's very harmful to women if a society holds them to standards that human women cannot reach and then they're shamed because they can't. Why should they be? We can all be wonderful and admirable people even while we have our flaws. That's something I want people to think about. That has been accepted for men for a long time, but it should be accepted for women as well. Many women come here and they're struggling to be accepted, to make a life in their personal lives, in their professional lives. If there is some word of advice or words of advice that you could give them on how they can fit in and continue and not be unhappy, what would you say to them given all your experience? Well, it's hard to give advice, right? Because everyone's situation is so different. So I can only share maybe a couple of things that were helpful to me. And the first thing is something my mother said to me when I was growing up. You must always be financially independent. No matter who you marry and how wonderful he is, if push comes to shove, you can take care of yourself and your dependent. That really struck with me, and I tried to do that as soon as my studies were over, get a profession of my own even before I became a writer. That's one of the things I would advise people, because when you are financially strong, it gives you dignity, mm-hmm. it gives you courage, it says to the world, don't mess with me because... I can walk away if I need to. I'm not a victim. So that's one of the things I would recommend to all women, if at all possible, have a career. I think it's a very mistaken notion that in order to be a good mother or homemaker, you have to do it 100%. I know that I was a much better mother because I was doing things that made me happy. That when I stopped teaching and writing for the day and I came to my kids, I was a happy person. I was feeling fulfilled. I could really throw myself into being a mom for them. Whereas if I'd been at home and feeling like, oh, life was passing me by, I'm sure I would not have been a good mother. And I'm sure I would not have been a good wife because I would have been resentful and frustrated. It's also wonderful to know that you're contributing financially to the family. So at least that's worked for me. I don't know if that would work for everyone. You have to have a life for yourself. A lot of women are unhappy, but can't leave because they're not financially secure. That should never be the reason that you stay somewhere. It shouldn't be because I have no way of looking after myself. I'm not saying that as soon as a relationship is bad, you should walk out of it. No, of course you do everything you can to work things out. But should you need to? A woman should know that I am perfectly capable of taking care of myself and whoever is my dependent. I've worked with so many cases of abuse. I have seen that women who didn't have that ability stay in relationships that are bad just because they're afraid they can't make it on their own. 
That should not be a reason for anyone to stay in a bad relationship. As a writer to other aspiring writers, what would you say are the two or three most important tips that an aspiring struggling writer needs to keep in mind? I would say the first thing is to read widely. Books were my best teachers because by the time I decided to become a writer, I'd finished all my formal education. I was teaching already. There was no way that I could go back to school to learn to become a writer. Read the kinds of books that you wouldn't pick up just for entertainment. Read to learn. Read like a writer. If you have an actual book, you take a pen or a pencil and you mark the passages. My books are filled with markings of passages that I liked and notes like, what did I learn? Characterization, action. The other thing I would say is to get together with a group of writers because it really helps. Even now, I'm just too close to see my own faults in my writing. I really have to show my writing to other friends whose judgment I trust, and they do the same. They show me their work, and I learn so much. Plus, it's great to have a writing community. It's great to have friends to share your work with. It really makes you feel less lonely as you are writing. And writing is a lonely craft. You do it on your own. You do it by yourself. And the third thing I would say is revise. You have to revise ruthlessly and relentlessly until it becomes the very best thing it can become. Is there any one book that you think was your best teacher? I've learned so many things from so many different books. I can't point to just one. One that was a favorite and that I now teach is a book by Tagore. The book is Home and the World. The Bengali title is Ghare Bairi. Satyajit Ray has made a beautiful film of that as well. Part of the book is in a woman's voice, and I was just fascinated. Tagore was so before his time. That whole novel is in various voices of different people, so it has multiple narrators, very unusual for that time, including a woman narrator who was the main character of the book. I just learned so much from that book. That's amazing. I have a rapid fire round for you. Okay. Are you ready? I'll try. Poems or prose? Prose. Short stories or novels? Novels. Houston or San Francisco? Houston. <laughs> Because that's my home. <laughs> Saris or skirts? Actually, I like kurtas. Sita or Draupadi? Sita now. TV series or feature films? Feature films. Favorite Bengali dish? Oh gosh, so many. <laughs> Bengali khichdi. My kids love it too. Durga Puja or Diwali? Diwali because it's the festival of light lighting us from the inside. What's your favorite leisure activity? Reading. <laughs> <laughs> Chitra, this has been so delightful. On behalf of Ek Women and my colleague Medha Jai Shankar, I want to thank you for your time. For all our listeners, you can catch our episodes on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you very much. And thank you for having me. This was a pleasure. 